Welcome to the Mighty Littles podcast. Okay, Mighty Littles listeners, this is Anna, and I'm really excited today to have Brittany Bergman on the podcast. She is a mother of two, and she wrote a book, Expecting Wonder, The Transformative Experience of Becoming a Mother. And I came across her book, and I just really enjoyed it, and I wanted to invite her onto the podcast. So welcome, Brittany. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. Yes, I'm just so excited. So I think when we're pregnant and when you look at the pregnancy books that are out on the market, a lot of them talk about what to expect when you're expecting or what to expect when you're pregnant and what the physical transformation that you go through is. So this is what your body's going to look like. This is what you can expect. This is what you might feel. But what I love about your book is that it really talks about that emotional pathway of going from wanting to have kids to trying to have kids to being pregnant to becoming a mother. And each one of those steps is a different process. And some people get stuck in one step or another. But that's what I really love about about your book and what I what I read in it. So why don't we start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and then tell us a little bit about your journey into motherhood. Sure. Well, thank you for those kind words. That was exactly my hope for the book is this emotional guidance for women who are going through this incredibly transformative experience. And we know that any transformation also can be really painful. And particularly in pregnancy, we're sort of given this cultural script that we need to just be grateful and happy that we're pregnant without necessarily acknowledging the grief that led up to it and maybe the some of the sorrow and the longing we have as we look toward this new life as mothers. So I'm so glad that that's what came through in the book. Um, well, with that, again, my name is Brittany Bergman, and I'm just so happy to be here. I have been married to my husband, Dan, for seven years. And like you said, we have two kids, my daughter, Sayla, um, which my the book centers on my pregnancy with her. She is almost five. And my son, Eamon, is 16 months old. So by day, I work as a copy editor at a publishing house working on nonfiction books. And I've been writing online for about six years now, um, have kind of transitioned into motherhood essays since I became a mom. And yeah, the book just came out in August. That is awesome. Congratulations on publishing the book. I think it's just fantastic. So I ask everybody where they get their baby names from. Can you tell us how you picked your names for your kids? Yeah, so I have always loved the word Selah. It comes from, it's a Hebrew word from the book of Psalms. And there's not really a great English translation for it, but it often, or it's thought to mean Like it's a musical direction to pause and to praise in like this very quiet and thoughtful reverence. My daughter is not really like that. so um, She doesn't quite live up to her name. She's very go, go, go. Um, But uh, yeah, so I just have always loved that word. I just think it, it sounds very musical. It sounds just, it's just such a pretty thing to say. Um, And I, I am like a very, quiet and thoughtful and reflective person. And so um, I mentioned it to my husband before I even got pregnant and he loved it right away. So that was always going to be our girl name. We had 
we had never been able to agree on a boy name, even through that first pregnancy. Um, and then we had two contenders even until after our son was born. And then it was clear that his name was Eamon. Um, Eamon does not really have a super special meaning to us, except that it's Irish and my family is very Irish. Um, and I, again, I just love the sound of it. I think it sounds very nice. Um, but the, the actual meaning of it, I think it means something like wealthy guardian, which is not super meaningful. (laughs) to me. Um, but, uh, I just love that it, it sounds nice. It sounds nice with Sela. It goes along with my Irish heritage. The other name we were considering was deeply meaningful, but we just didn't love the sound of it as much. So yeah, well, it's <laughs> second kid gets the less meaningful name, but that's okay. I, th- I think it's interesting how people come about their names because, you know, as a neonatologist, I'm always, meeting new parents right after the birth of their child. They're in the NICU. And one really nice way to break the ice is to say, hey, how did you choose the name for your baby? And you never know what's going to come back at you. So one time I had a dad who said, well, we named our daughter Kimber after my favorite gun. And so that's one kind of story. And then another kind of story is, well, my father died halfway through my pregnancy and this baby is named after my dad. And other times it's, this was the only name we agreed on or Mm -hmm. I picked last time. And so dad picked this time. I actually hate this name, but that's what we're going to go with. So you just never (laughs) know what you're going to get back. And so I just love using that as an icebreaker and kind of having a baby in the NICU be, be, be just a baby, right? Like kind of like, Mm -hmm. let's take away all this other stuff that's around us and just focus on your baby and focusing on the name as a way to do that right at the beginning. So they're beautiful names. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, thanks. Thank you. (laughs) So why don't we talk a little bit about your journey into motherhood, um, which you talk about in your book as well. But I think for the people that are listening to the podcast, I think it will be helpful for them to kind of know your decisions about going into motherhood and how that, what that looked like and how that reflected when you went to write your book. Yeah. So I did not always want kids. I was not the, the little girl who, I I mean, I played house a lot. I played with the babies a lot, but I just, it wasn't even like I made this intentional decision. I just thought I probably won't have kids. Um, I knew that I wanted, um, a, a pretty demanding career, um, I, which I did not end up in. <laughs> I am now in book publishing, but I wanted for the longest time, I thought I would be a lawyer and that I would go the political route, that I would become a senator, maybe a Supreme Court justice someday or the president. Um, now I am so glad I didn't take that path. But um, I just, kids never really fit into the plan for me. And then something kind of changed gradually for me over the course of college and young adulthood as I really did dig more deeply into my career. And I realized that it didn't, it wouldn't provide, I don't want to say not enough fulfillment, but I came to realize that one thing cannot define us. And one thing cannot be what brings fulfillment to our lives. You know, it's not just a job. It's not just motherhood. It's not just a marriage or a relationship or any number of things like putting all of our faith in one area to bring us fulfillment is kind of a setup for disaster. 
And I had a lot of really beautiful models of motherhood throughout my life. My mom just loves being a mom, loves being a grandmother too. And I was one of my, I was one of the last people in my friend group to start having kids. And so watching them walk through that was really helpful to me in solidifying that, yeah, actually I do want kids and I do want to, you know, I, on some levels I thought maybe I lacked the maternal instinct since I didn't always want kids, but I watched my friends become who they were supposed to be as mothers and not sort of this caricature of a mom. And it made me realize that I bring a lot to the table. And it just felt like, especially once I met my husband, a really natural extension of our love for one another to create a safe and loving and caring home for, you know, the next generation. And so, of course, you never know what your fertility story is going to be if we were going to be able to have kids biologically, but we knew that we wanted to make our home a home for children, however that might happen for us. Um, he came from a big family too, and I came from a, uh, I have two other siblings, and we were very close. And so the more I thought about our childhoods, the more I realized I really did want to have kids. The timing was a bit of a contentious issue for us, as I write about in the book. I pushed to have kids much sooner than he wanted to, and we still ended up having kids very quickly. I think I got pregnant before our second anniversary, um, which is, it's fast. Um, but again, like a lot of our friends were already parents. And so on the one hand, I felt a lot of fear in comparison in that way. I wanted to get started so that I wasn't behind everybody else. But that also has a less shadowy side, right? Like I wanted to experience this new phase of life alongside my friends. I wanted our kids to grow up together. And so I, I didn't want to wait too long knowing that it, you know, it could take a while um, and we might run into unforeseen challenges. So we eventually started trying, yeah, about a year and a half into our marriage. And I got pregnant surprisingly quickly because I knew from the beginning that I don't have a great cycle for achieving pregnancy. And so I was floored when it when it happened and then stuck. <laughs> so it's interesting what you say about comparison in the book. As somebody who was going, who went through medical school, you know, so I did college and then medical school and then residency. And, you know, I would meet up with friends from other phases of my life. So friends from college or friends from high school or friends from youth group or, or whatever. And they would say, oh, wow, you're a doctor and you're so accomplished and look at all these wonderful things you're doing. And for me, I did always know that I wanted to be a parent. Like I've always, I've always known that I wanted to be a parent. I love the way that as a parent, you can look at life through your children's eyes and th see things new again and see things for the first time again and experience the wonder of seeing a giraffe with this really tall neck that's eating from way up high, right? Like, so it's just a tiny little example of, as an adult, something you don't notice anymore. It's a, it's a giraffe. They eat whatever they eat, right? Like it's, it's just not a big thing. But for a two-year-old or an 18-month-old, oh, wow, there's this giraffe. And so 
I always knew that I wanted to be a mom. And people would always say, oh, how wonderful all these things that you've accomplished in terms of your career. But I always felt like something was missing because I did want to be a mom and my friends were having kids. And so you talk about in your book, um, sometimes it's so I'm on page 18, for those of you who are there. Sometimes I feel ashamed for wanting to keep up and the platitudes I often heard from well-meaning people drifting through my head. Don't worry so much about what other people are doing and do what's right for you. And then further down, we question whether we're doing the right thing when it looks different from what everyone else is doing. And I think for me, that was such a big, powerful statement in your book because we do compare ourselves to others and it's hard not to but everybody finds their path when it's right for them and so for me i did get married later in life i did have my kids later in life but it turns out that it worked out for the best because my kids and my brother's kids and my cousin's kids are all the same age and we all were pregnant together and then we were all pregnant together again. And now we all have three kids between the ages of two and seven. And and so there's this really great group of kids. And if I had gotten married earlier and had my kids earlier because I was the older person in our group, then I wouldn't have that experience with our kids being the same way. But when you're waiting for it and you're going through it, sometimes it's really when you know you want something, or even if you don't know you want something and then you do decide that you want something, that comparing to other people who have it right now when you're not quite there yet is really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's that's what makes this so tricky is especially if you know that it's something you want, it takes a lot of restraint and a lot of wisdom, I think, to say, I know I want this and I could have it right now if I wanted to, or theoretically, um, I know that's not always true, but like, oh, we could start trying right now. Um, and then to have the restraint to say, actually, our relationship isn't ready for this. Actually, I'm not ready for this or whatever, you know, number of reasons you might have for that. It's really difficult to have that within reach and then to say, okay, but not now. Right. And I think the other part of it is, when you know that it's not the right time and so you put it off and then when you do start trying and you have trouble is it because we waited or gosh Mm -hmm. if I knew we were going to have this much trouble I would have started a long time ago there's you know there's some time constraints on it and there's so much uncertainty around the process of getting pregnant for some people they get pregnant really really easy For some people, they have to try for a really long time. And for other people, they can get pregnant, but they can't stay pregnant. And so it just, Mm -hmm. there's so much uncertainty and you don't have that control around it that it makes it, it can make it hard when you're trying to figure out what the best path is because you literally don't have control. That's exactly right. And that was a huge part of the fear on my end and why I wanted to start trying sooner is I knew, you know, If I want, this is how my brain is always thinking, right? Well, I want X number of kids and I'm this old. And then, you know, I want to be done having kids by the time I get such and such age. 
And so I'm backwards planning, okay, so if I want two to three years in between each kid, and I want to make sure that this one's in kindergarten before the youngest is in daycare and all these things, then we need to start trying yesterday. Um, Not to mention if, you know, if I'm the last of my friends to have a first baby, and then it takes us a year to get pregnant, that puts us in really remarkably different parenting seasons from the beginning. And again, like, I, in my heart of hearts, trusted that what happened would be the right outcome, but it is so easy to grasp at that control because what you can control is the trying to get pregnant Correct. and what we can't control is absolutely everything else. <laughs> yes. Well, and, and I always joke when people become new parents, I'm like, welcome to the world of parenting where you literally have no control over your life anymore because mm. the baby is the one that's dictating everything when you wake up and when you eat and you can try to control all of that but in reality you really can't and you have to be willing to let go of some of that control um to to be successful in your in your trying in your pregnancy and your parenting Mm -hmm. and I think pregnancy is an incredible lesson for us in that because in parenting we we provide space and we provide some inputs, we provide guidance, but we don't have any actual control. And so much of pregnancy is it's like, it's happening inside of us. Like our bodies are doing the work of pregnancy and yet we aren't, we are active to the process, but we aren't controlling the process. We're not telling our uterus to grow. We're not telling our blood to, I don't know, make extra medical one here, but yeah. Yeah, the amount that our bodies do, that they just, they just do it. And again, like, we are providing the space and we are providing the hospitality and we're providing the prenatal vitamins and the nutrition and everything that our babies need, but we're not in control of it at all. And I really had to come to terms with that because I always want to be in control. I'm always sort of grasping for control but it's also, it would have been too much. Like, I'm not supposed to be in charge of all that. Um, what if I dropped the ball? I would sort of blame myself forever if I forgot to do one of the biological processes. Like, it's too much for any one person to bear. And so I'm so glad that this is how our bodies work. But it was it was a hard lesson to learn, for sure. Yeah. So you talk about that a little bit um, in your book while, while you're pregnant about... Um, the getting online and looking at discussion boards or, you know, either while you're trying to get pregnant or right when you find out you're pregnant and reaching out to now not just discussion boards, but also social media and Facebook groups and mommy blog groups and Instagram and Pinterest and reaching out for connection, but how that connection also then leads to kind of more control which can be really difficult when you're pregnant, um, when you're trying to have control over something you really don't have control over. Do you know the part of the book that I'm referring to? Oh, yes. <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah. So I, I really loved how you talked about that, um, ab- about trying to have control, because I think a lot of people have some anxiety during pregnancy. If you look at some of the kind of more medical boards, they talk about that pregnancy-related anxiety, especially now in the time of COVID. And looking Mm. for that connection, 
because you want connection, but then that connection kind of morphing into trying to have control. Can you talk a little bit about why you wrote about that and what that was like in your pregnancy? Because I think that was such a wonderful part of your book. Oh, thanks. I mean, I think a lot of this grew out of at the, the whole book sort of came from that, right? Like I was at the beginning of pregnancy. I had never been pregnant before. And at the time we still weren't really talking about pregnancy experiences. And this was only five years ago. Um, and I was, I, I needed to ask so many questions and I had so many uncertainties about, about my own body. Like I'm talking even just physical at this point, not even to touch the emotional stuff. Um, you know, I had my doubts about my luteal phase, you know, I didn't think that I would be able to get pregnant. I didn't think that I'd be able to stay pregnant. And some of that was, you know, evidence that I was seeing from my own body. And some of it was just that I catastrophize everything. Yeah. Just um, because I always fear the worst. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I went onto these discussion boards looking for hope, looking for somebody who had been in my situation before and had gotten pregnant successfully and stayed pregnant and had a healthy baby. I was looking for proof points because I didn't have any for myself yet. And I was looking for somebody who, you know, had a short luteal phase, you know, maybe nine to 10 days long, or who had low estrogen or progesterone, low progesterone, um, and still got pregnant successfully. And I felt like if I could find somebody on a discussion board whose story matched mine, and they got successfully pregnant, then that would mean that I could have hope, too. And especially, it's incredibly maddening that in that two week wait, you know, any sign that we could possibly be pregnant, like the very beginning symptoms are pretty much identical to the symptoms of your period being on its way. And so I just looked up every little symptom, you know, (laughs) like just how sore do my boobs need to be to indicate that this is pregnancy and not my period or like this little cramp, like was that implantation is, you know, I was just looking for anything that would indicate that I could keep hope alive. But again, as I devoured the discussion boards, it began to sort of control me in a way because I couldn't stay away. I would jump on my phone to just, oh, I'm just going to ask this one little question. Um, And then I would get sucked into the vortex and I would click to the next post and the next and the next. And it just kind of led me on this spiral of actually feeling less control and less hopeful because, of course, you can also find stories that that don't reflect what you're hoping for yourself um, that can weigh us down. And, of course, I think there's power in witnessing other people's stories in that way. Um, but it wasn't what I needed right at that moment. So I just, I started to feel out of control and powerless the more time I actually spent looking for control and looking for hope. Um, and so eventually I just needed to step away because I was driving myself absolutely crazy and I was missing life. You know, I was, I was missing out. Right. So it's interesting as I was reading that section of your book it really paralleled with something that I tell people in the NICU all the time, which is 
we we know that things don't always work out the way we want them to work out. We don't always get pregnant. The pregnancy test isn't always positive at the end of the two-week wait. Um, our babies don't always have the outcome that we want when we're in the NICU. Um, my son was in the hospital with COVID in March, and he was really, really sick. And the thoughts would come in as you're hearing the national news well, what if he does get intubated? Well, what if things don't go the way we want them to do? Well, what if he is the first mm-hmm. kid in Colorado to have a bad outcome? You know, like those 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 thoughts, those those worries, they always come in. You can't stop them from coming in. But you can be very intentional about what you do with those thoughts. So when those thoughts come in, when you see stuff on the discussion board where things are going a different direction than what you were hoping to see, you can say, well, yeah, I know that that's a possibility, but that's not today. And I'm going to set it aside today. Mm. Today, I'm not living through my worst case scenario. Today, I'm not having to deal with really bad news. Today, I'm not having a miscarriage. Um, And to hold on to that hope and really only live through the bad stuff once instead of living through the bad stuff every single day until you may or may not have to live through it. Right. So an example, Mm. what I was thinking about when you were talking about getting pregnant is you think about that two week wait. And is this a symptom of pregnancy? Is this not, is this not? Well, now I have this twinge and, or have this spotting and, Oh, I'm sure I'm losing this pregnancy, but you don't know that yet. So let's take a deep breath and let's wait. And then if things continue to go well, now you're not missing out on all the joy of every single day in between now and then. And if things don't Mm. go well, let's deal with it on that day because there might still be some really joyful moments between now and when we have to deal with it that you would totally miss out if you're only focused on when the bad thing is going to happen. I don't know if that makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. It makes perfect sense. And that has been my experience too, is we, a a potential bad outcome or the reality of a bad outcome doesn't invalidate the joy that, that led up to that or the, the joy that we had before that moment. But if we miss the joy, what do we have left to hold on to? That has been a really important strategy for me in dealing with my anxiety overall, you know, um, my worry, believe it or not, my worry didn't stop after I became a parent. Now there's just more and more and bigger things to worry about. And your again, like I'm the kind shift. of person who, yeah, your worries just shift. They focus. do. You just yeah. start worrying about something yeah. else next. Mm-hmm. I'm the same yeah, way. and I tend to <laughs> catastrophize. Yeah, to the very worst possible scenario. And like you said, it's I've learned to call it pre-grieving. I tell myself, don't pre-grieve this. Because our our brains and our bodies don't always know the difference between imagining what we would feel if the worst happened and then what we feel if the worst happens. And so like you said, we're, we're literally living it two times if that worst possible thing happens. But so often it doesn't. Right. And then we've forced ourselves to live through those emotions of sorrow and mourning and grief when we we didn't have to. And I think often the things that we were worried about sometimes don't come to pass, but other things do that we weren't even prepared for anyway. 
So then we're still dealing with these really hard, painful feelings when we could have, like you said, spent that time enjoying the moments, which is so much easier said than done. I am not great at staying in the present moment and fully enjoying it. So that has been the work, honestly, of having very small children. And especially during the time of COVID is learning to be present because it's all like, it's my life's work to learn that it's all that I have. Yeah. My journey to become a mom um, involved miscarriage and some fertility treatment and being a neonatologist where you know everything that goes wrong does not lay the groundwork for having a blissfully ignorant pregnancy, right? Where you just Mm -hmm. believe everything is going to be good. And so that exact same concept that don't pre-grieve something is exactly what my husband would tell me to do. And I remember the first 20 times he gave me that advice. I just wanted to smack him across the face, right? Like, stop (laughs) stop telling me, I know I'm trying, but babe, everything is fine today. Don't, don't, don't let your mind go there. And I'm like, you just don't understand how hard that is. And it is really, really hard, but I think it is some of the best advice that, that we have to offer to people who are trying to get pregnant or who have higher risk pregnancies or who have babies in the NICU is not to pre-grieve. And it, and it is way easier said than done. It takes so much practice. It really does. Yeah. It changes your ability to stay in the moment with your kids and to, and to enjoy the smaller things without wishing for the next thing. So what was your favorite part about being pregnant? Oh my gosh, it's so hard. I love being pregnant. I love pregnancy. I will say though, my second pregnancy was harder. You know, there is a big difference between, I don't know if it's that my body being pregnant for the second time that everything was harder or if it's that I was older or if it was both, but um, I felt the aches and pains a lot sooner with my with my second, but I still really loved it. And I feel like I can say that because I didn't get terribly sick. Um, I was more sick with my second, um, but overall, I had very smooth pregnancies, and that is a huge privilege. I totally understand that not everybody loves it. Um, I think baby movements are the obvious answer here. Like, mm-hmm. I just love, love, love the feeling, you know, for, for the most part of being kicked by a little foot or like feeling that first flicker of movement, like, oh my gosh, is it, is it LaCroix? Is it a baby? I don't know. Um, and then just watching my belly ripple as the babies got bigger. I also had two babies who sat very low, so I didn't ever feel like they were impinging on my lungs. And that was a huge help. But I think Other than that, maternity clothes are one of my favorite parts about pregnancy. I love maternity clothes. They are so comfortable. I could not break them out soon enough with my second pregnancy. I really resisted them in the first one because I thought it was like this badge of honor if I could wear my regular clothes as long as possible. And then I tried on maternity clothes and I was like, what have I been missing this whole time? These full panel jeans. Oh my goodness. I've never gone back. And truly, for the first time in our lives, we're highlighting our body, like we're highlighting all the growing parts of us. 
um, which is a really different experience that I had in women's clothing for much of my life. You know, for much of my life, I was trying to hide things. And it just felt like such a gift and an invitation to put on these clothes that were meant to be soft and supportive and to grow with me. And it was really a reminder to myself to continue to give my body what it needed. And so I just have such a soft spot for maternity clothes. For any fashion designers who are out there, you should make maternity clothes for non-pregnant people. And that should just be the standard of how we live. That's that's how much I love maternity yes. clothes. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> what was the hardest part of being pregnant for you? I think the fear. The fear was definitely the hardest part and not having that control. And especially in the first trimester, not even having a true window into what was going on because, you know, I had, I think, a six or an eight week appointment because simply because I had started bleeding and they wanted to check on that. So I got an early ultrasound with my first pregnancy. Actually, that happened in both of my pregnancies. Um, I had some very early bleeding, or I should say I've had three pregnancies because I did have a miscarriage between um, my first and my second um, children. And so I ended up having that early ultrasound, but then like, you still can't hear the heartbeat until 10 or 12 weeks. And I think it's pretty normal to not even have a full-on doctor's appointment till you're almost through that first trimester. And so not having any sort of reassurance, except maybe feeling nauseated that everything is going right, that everything is changing. Because once you're in the second trimester, the third trimester, you know, your belly is growing, you see the changes, you feel the baby moving more. And you're hearing that heartbeat every few weeks. But the first trimester just feels like it's shrouded in such mystery. And again, it's not something, especially in a first pregnancy that we've ever experienced before that a lot of us, unfortunately, don't have working knowledge of our bodies. And it can be really hard to know that I don't really know what's going on here. I don't know that everything's okay. I don't know that I haven't miscarried two or three weeks ago, and I'm only going to find out about it at this next doctor's appointment. So the fear was definitely the hardest part. And of course, later on in the pregnancy, just the aches and pains that come along with it. And the it just feels unbelievably cruel that it becomes so hard to sleep at the end of pregnancy as we're getting ready for a season of sleep deprivation. So um, pregnancy insomnia hit me hard in the third trimester with both kids. And I have just terrible hips. And so I was just rolling back and forth through the night, not able to get comfortable. So those were those were the hardest parts for sure. What do you think helped you the most with that fear of uncertainty during that first trimester? Right. So, you know, you talk about how you reached out to boards to get hope, you know, the discussion boards. And I think people now are reaching out to social media and Instagram. Um, yeah. And and that can be helpful, but it can also be detrimental. And, you know, you have to walk that balance and, and that balance is going to be different for everybody. Um, what do you think really helped you through that that fear yeah, I definitely 
gave into the fear at every turn at the beginning. And then when I started bleeding at about eight weeks, I started bleeding on a Sunday, which of course I couldn't, you know, it wasn't bad enough that I needed to go to the emergency room or anything. So, but I also couldn't really get in touch with my doctor on a Sunday. And so I felt like I was really navigating these waves on my own for only about 24 hours, but it just felt like an eternity. And, you know, my husband was there with me and I had to come to terms with, okay, the worst might happen here. Like I might miscarry this baby. And what do I hold on to in this moment to get me through? And I just felt this really deep impression that I needed to not necessarily be joyful in that moment because it was really hard. It was really hard to have that uncertainty, but to remember whatever happens here, my body carried life. I got pregnant when I wasn't sure that I could. I got to this point in a pregnancy and like whether this baby gets to full term or doesn't survive until tomorrow, I carried her. I carried a little life inside of me. And every day that I have with that is a gift. Even if those days are over too soon, I can think of each one as a gift. And that's what got me through to the next day. And then we had the ultrasound. We saw that the baby was alive and well and fine. They they think in both of my pregnancies that the source of the bleeding was, um, I don't remember the name for it, some sort of hemorrhage like that sub, then passes. hemorrhage? Yes, that's exactly it. Um, and even still, I got back in the car and drove home. And when I got there, I started looking up statistics of, okay, what's the chances of miscarriage after you've heard the heartbeat and seen it on the ultrasound screen? And I start telling my husband, oh my gosh, this is great. You know, there's so little chance of miscarriage now. And he's like, why are you still worrying about this? And I, you know, I was like, I just don't know how not to. And it was in that moment that I realized just how much my fixation on what might happen was stealing from me. And I sort of made a promise to myself that I just wouldn't let that happen anymore, that I was going to focus on celebrating the little moments and lean into my community too. And that's when we started to tell I think we had already told a few people about the baby, but we started telling more and more people because I knew that I needed people around me if something terrible did happen. And so I think learning to be, you know, it's the more vulnerable approach, right, to admit that I'm going to celebrate anyway. We feel vulnerable. It feels vulnerable to tell people and to let them celebrate this good news on our behalf, right? I had this fear that I would disappoint people if I told them and then miscarried or that somehow that would make me feel ashamed, which is absolutely absurd. And so I think letting people in and being more vulnerable with myself and with my husband and with my loved ones really helped me get through the rest of that first trimester. And and I think your points are so valid because... The minute you tell somebody, now all of a sudden you have to tell them if it doesn't go well. And we yes. have such a, um, it's it's getting better. I mean, people are talking about, like, people are talking about the fact that they've had a miscarriage. I remember when I had my first miscarriage, 
I was, I was devastated. Like you don't realize that you fall in love with this baby, this person, the minute you pee on the stick and you get a positive pregnancy test. Like I was in love with being pregnant and I was in love with the baby that was coming the minute I found out I was pregnant. And so any person you tell that you're pregnant, you now also have to tell if something doesn't go correctly. And up until recently, people didn't talk about the miscarriages. And then now people are starting to talk about it a little bit more. And I remember when I finally said something to somebody that I had had a miscarriage. Oh, well, so did I. When I said it to somebody else. Oh, well, so did I. And there were all these people that had been through it who had the same feelings that I had but they weren't talking about it either. And so it's only by allowing ourselves to be vulnerable and telling people things that they can become our support because a lot of women have been through the exact same thing. So I, I yeah. think it that's a really good, um, I just think it's really a good coping mechanism and, and really good advice for other people. It doesn't mean you have to be an oversharer and share it with the entire world and scream it from the treetops that you're pregnant, yeah. but you can tell your those people who are your closest support people, your family and your friends, who will also be the people that you lean on if things don't go well. Yeah, I think that's a great. That's exactly right. And that's why we decided to move forward with telling people is, well, these are the people that I'm going to tell if something goes wrong. If I have a miscarriage, these are the friends I'm going to text. These are the ones who are probably going to bring me dinner. These are the ones who I'm going to call to cry with. And why would I do myself the disservice of only telling them bad news? Why wouldn't I let myself tell them the joyful news first? Even if I do kind of going back to what we were saying before, why wouldn't I let myself experience the joy just because I might have to tell them bad news in the future? Um, My first miscarriage or my I'm sorry, my my miscarriage between my first and my second babies Um, it happened so fast that I almost didn't get a chance to tell. I had told a few people, but not many. And, um, it, yeah, it was, I wish that I had had a chance to tell more people the good news, you know? Yeah. And I think it's hard too, um, when you're sharing something like a miscarriage with people, because I I don't know about you, but a lot of times the, the, the comments that came back were, well, everything happens for a reason. Well, you can get pregnant again, or you know you got pregnant, so you'll get pregnant again, or there must have been something wrong with the baby. And while I know that those were well-meaning comments, I think what I really wanted to hear was, I'm so sorry that you're hurting. Can I give you a Mm -hmm. hug? Yeah, I'm a doctor. I know that the majority of the reason that women miscarry is because there is a chromosomal defect with that baby. Um, I know that I didn't exercise too hard or eat something wrong to cause it. But I really just wanted somebody to say, I'm sorry, you're hurting and give me a hug. That's what I wanted. I didn't want... I didn't want somebody to try to make sense of it for me, to tell me everything was going to be okay. Because in that moment, you don't know. You you don't, I don't know that I can get pregnant again. That doesn't feel comforting to me. Um, 
And I think yeah. the if you keep that circle close that you share good news with, those are the people that are going to say, I'm so sorry you're hurting. Can I give you a hug? Yes, exactly. And somebody to just acknowledge what a loss it is. And I think other mothers are particularly good at this because we know, like you said, from the moment you see those two lines on a stick, it doesn't matter how detached you try to be just in case those dreams take root immediately because it's not just the loss of a four week old or a six week old embryo. We've lost everything we imagined for that baby's life. Even if we hope that that will happen for us again, what we're grieving is not just the loss of a pregnancy at whatever stage. We're grieving the loss of what we thought would be for that child who we thought they might be. Um, Even the loss of the month we thought they would be born, like those things happen almost in an instant. You start dreaming for that baby, even if you're trying really hard not to, it just it happens. And so we're grieving the loss of a life and a dream. And that is incredibly painful. Right. And so, yeah, those people who will just say, this is so painful and I'm so sorry. Let me be here with you. Let me hold space for you. That is everything. And that's the person that I try to be now because I do like to be a fixer. I do like to point people to the optimistic, but having been on the receiving end of those well-intended, but kind of harmful comments, um, I really don't want to do that to other people. Yeah. And, and I do think they, they are well-intended and yeah, they, they really are well-intended and having gone through some of those experiences, I, I just want I think sometimes the hardest thing to do is just sit quietly with somebody and say, I'm so sorry you're hurting and, mm-hmm. and just be there and let the silence happen and, and don't try to fix it and don't try to talk through it and don't try to find the bright side. Just sit there. You talk about yeah. in your book um, about... Um, by virtue of being human and living in the world, our children will experience pain. We as mothers are only human too, and we do our best and fall short at times. And so I think it's a remind that as we're talking about kind of that pain and the grief and, and losing, being willing to sit in pain with somebody is important. And then as parents, I really want to try to protect my kids from having pain and having loss but just by the nature of being human, they're going to experience that too. And I have to remember with my own kids, it's okay for me to just say, I'm so sorry that you're sad and hurting that your friend didn't want to play with you. And can I give you a hug and not try to fix it and not try Mm -hmm. to make everything all right and tell them that things happen for a reason and just let them be sad. So it, it, it kind of transcends mm-hmm. from us to our kids as well. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that's how we it's how we build trust with people, right? Especially with our kids. That's how we show someone that we are a safe place for them. And especially with our kids, it can be really easy, I think, to dismiss our kids' pain. Um, at least the the small things or the things that we would deem small as adults, right? You know, the the crayon broke. The favorite blankie is in the wash. This friend didn't want to play Legos today. They wanted to play something else. That stuff is devastating to our kids. Um, and it really takes 
a hefty dose of empathy to say, wow, that is so hard. And that is so painful. And like you said, to sit there with them in their pain, but that's how we show them. That's how we build that foundation as their safe place that when they come to us with their heartbreaks, that we validate it and we sit there with it without um, trying to fix it or trying to, again, control it. Um, Because it teaches them that it's okay to feel this way. It's okay to have a big feeling and it's okay to work through it at your own pace. Like I'm not going to swoop in and save the day, even though every mama instinct in me wants to, you know, I want my kids, of course, to experience pain and learn to be resilient, but I want them to experience it in the exact right doses in the safest setting possible, and then have an appropriate repair after the fact. But again, that's something that I don't get to control. And so when we just sit there in it with them, they learn to trust us. And I think it helps them learn to deal that that they are strong enough and resilient enough to deal with those bigger heartbreaks later. I don't want the first time my kids to work through pain to be when they're 18, 19 years old and living away from me when I really, really don't have any control anymore. I want to build the the foundation of them seeing me as a safe place to carry their pain because that's going to last us for a lifetime. Right. No, that's just wonderful. You write in your book, um, as you're talking about building your nursery and um, getting things that um, perfectionism is often a short sighted attempt at connection. And I just wanted to expand on that a little bit because I do When I read that, I was like, oh my gosh, that is so true that if we can make the space perfect, if we can make the experience perfect, then somehow we're more connected to our our children or to our spouse or to whoever. Um, I just wanted you to expand on those ideas a little bit because it just really resonated with me the things around us don't have to be perfect for us to be perfectly connected. Yeah. So I think about, I, there's three kind of big categories that we named here, right? Like making a space perfect. I definitely was guilty of that with the nursery, trying to make it exactly what I wanted it to be because I thought of it as a place of connection with my daughter. I knew that this space would be very meaningful to us. But then that morphed into, I need to make it perfect. And then we also have, you know, sort of our houses at large, right? When we invite people over, when we're getting ready for a guest or a party, we hide all the clutter, we clean all the surfaces, we try to make it perfect because we want someone to feel safe and comfortable and cared for in that space. And then we have experiences. I know I'm guilty of trying to make holidays and outings and special experiences perfect because then it feels like that's the only way to make a valid memory in a way. But in all of these cases, my drive toward perfectionism is actually a hindrance to the connection that I'm seeking. It's so much better if my house isn't perfect because then somebody feels even more comfortable and safe in that space because it's realistic. And when things don't go according to plan on whatever special day, if I'm all hung up on perfectionism, then I lose the connection. If I'm so focused on trying to fix it or how it went wrong or how it wasn't what I wanted, 
that energy takes me right out of the moment. And then I end up that night feeling like I kind of wasted this day. Like maybe my kids still had a great time. Maybe they are oblivious, but I missed the opportunity to make a memory for me because I was chasing after something that I never could have attained anyway. Like we can never attain true perfection. And so we, if we'll fall short every single time and it's going to pull us out of the moment every single time, that is actually working in opposition to the goal that we have of trying to connect and love our our family, our friends. Yeah, no, I absolutely love that. And I, I think all of us can relate to trying to make Christmas morning or Easter morning perfect. And sometimes if you just let go of that, it turns out to be so much better. It's, yeah. it, it just, it, I, I just so relate to that. Like it, that was one of the big circles I put in your book. I was like, yes, this is <laughs> so important. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it's a lesson I am still learning and relearning. I feel like everything that I wrote in the book is something that I learned and that I just, I keep learning it over and over and over again. Well, and I (laughs) I am not done in this area. That's for sure. Yeah. Neither am I. And, and I, and I think about it like for, I think holidays are the biggest thing, right? So you want Christmas morning to be perfect and you have matching pajamas and you want everybody to be excited and um last year our Christmas didn't go the way that we thought it was going to go and we weren't even in town and we had Christmas at somebody else's house in a different city at the last minute and somebody else helped get my kids stuff because I didn't I, I we didn't have anything and it was perfect the Christmas was so wonderful and it was so not planned and it was so last minute let's just throw things together to try to make it special for the kids but it ended up being so wonderful and it was like the lesson relearned again um that it doesn't it doesn't have to be perfect or how you envision it for it to actually be perfect yeah I think if we can focus on making things connected and life-giving it's so much better yeah so um in the interest of time I would like so I wanted to ask you about making space um and saying no and then I also wanted to ask you about birth plans but I think in the interest of time I want to stay focused on the making space and then maybe we can talk about birth plans when we do the Instagram live um later yeah let's do that yeah great idea okay um just because I know we're we're moving in on the hour and I want to respect your time and the listeners time um so you talk about um the power of no and the power of making space and time within your life, in your book. And I think this is one of the things that I have been trying to do more and more in the last couple of years is say no more often, which allows me to say yes all the time for things that I'm really, really passionate about and make space mm-hmm. in my life for those yeses that I want to be able to do. And it is incredibly hard to say no and just have blank space, white noise, 
blank space in your life where you just can think about what you really want. And and I like that you talked about it in your book. Oh, thank you. I think pregnancy is a time in which we can get swept away by the to-do list like no other time because like Pinterest is full of things that we need to do to have a successful pregnancy, not to speak of the work we need to do on ourselves to get ready to become moms. But again, the start planning your nursery here, start planning your registry there, like pack your hospital bag. These are all the things you need. And it feels like I started pregnancy and I was already behind on all the things that I needed to do. Not to mention that I was living my regular life too. Like I still had a husband and a job and family and friends and all these other obligations. Um, I think it's uh, Pamela Druckerman's book, Bringing Up Bebe, where she says, um, in many other countries, we don't treat pregnancy as an independent research project. And I think that encapsulates it so well that pregnancy feels like this independent research project where we, we take on this insane amount of work trying to figure out yeah, just how to do pregnancy well. And a lot of that was, again, pulling me away from the reflection and the, the space that I needed to really process the change that I was going through. It all really distracted me. And by the time I got to the end of my second trimester, you know, things were starting to feel very real. I knew that third trimester would just fly by, like time was moving faster and faster. And I realized like pregnancy is, it feels like now pregnancy is happening to me and I am struggling to keep up with this to-do list instead of really being an active participant and letting myself really have the space to work through that change. And it's not just like, oh, well, I needed to get up 15 minutes earlier to write in my journal. I needed to create margin for myself to just breathe. And so I definitely started to learn to say no more. And I feel like with both pregnancies, once I hit like 30 weeks, I just had this increasingly and undeniable biological urge to just draw inward. I had a hard time even focusing at work. Um, I had a hard time. I was writing this book while I was pregnant with my second baby. And I hit a point where I was like, I just have nothing left. Like I have the energy, like I could keep writing, but I just felt this really strong urge to go inward and to cut out everything that I could. Um, and who knows, maybe that is a biological impulse that we feel as we get ready to devote our attention to somebody else for possibly the first time in our lives to have an experience like that. And I realized that I needed to learn how, how to say no. Um, and so something that kind of grew out of this time that I do now is I try to have little personal policies for myself because I get decision fatigue very easily. And so I try to set categories of like rules that if this, then that. So I know myself and I know, I mean, COVID has thrown everything for a loop, right? Like now I can't have too much. There's, yeah. there's no social obligations on the calendar. Exactly. Under normal circumstances. Yeah. I know I can only have one thing each week, like on the weeknights max. And I can't do that for multiple weeks in a row. I might have to learn to flex on that one once my kids are old enough to do activities. But on the weekends, 
two social events is my absolute max between Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I've learned what is the right amount versus too much and how to feel ready for what's coming next, whether that's something small, like I know my baby's going to wake up from a nap in 30 minutes. What do I need to do right now to feel ready for my baby to wake up? Because so often I was doing things that didn't fill me up and then I would feel angry and resentful once nap time was over. So what do I need to do to be the person I want to be after the baby wakes up? And also big picture, what do I need to do to be the person I want to be once pregnancy is over and this baby is in my life or whatever the big next step might be. I think that's the point of saying no and making space is not just to have more time to fill, but so that we can clarify with ourselves and choose what stays in our life and, and what we need to do to be ready for whatever's coming next. No, I think those are really excellent points. When I think about all the to-do lists that you have during pregnancy, it almost feels like a distraction. If I, if you just distract yeah. yourself by doing all of these to-dos, you don't give yourself time to think and sink into that idea that your life is about to change forever. And you know, you know mm -hmm. it, you're having a baby, everybody says, well, your life is forever changed once you have a baby. But you haven't really thought about how that happens. And I think giving yourself time to think about that while you're pregnant is really beneficial. And um, those to do lists really can be distracting to because you just keep checking off the things and you just keep checking off the things and then you never really let yourself feel what you're feeling either excited or overwhelmed or anxious or a combination of all of them um you have to stop and sit to allow yourself to feel those things yeah and i think they're not only a distraction but they're the only way we can sort of prove to ourselves in this weird way that we're going to be good moms especially in that first pregnancy We've never done this before. We don't know what it's like to actually add a baby to our families. And there's only so much internal work that we can do to be ready for that, right? Like we yeah. can be ready, but maybe not fully prepared until we're actually living in it. And we know that. We know that we don't know. And that is an incredibly overwhelming and again, out of control feeling. And so instead, we have these really tangible things that we can do, like, I can make the most perfect baby registry this world has ever seen. I can make a beautiful nursery. I can fold the swaddles and put them in the most efficient place in the dresser. And I can pick all these right products because we so desperately want to prove to ourselves that we're going to be good moms. And this is all we know of motherhood so far, right, is the products. And that's the only way we have to really prepare, it can feel like. And I think learning to realize that who we are as moms is not wrapped up in any of that. Like it says absolutely nothing about our motherhood if we pick the right bottles. <laughs> and learning, well, and, <laughs> I was and so your hung up right on the bottles, bottles are going to be different than my right bottles. And you know, like yeah. that's, and each baby is yeah. going to be different. My son wanted nothing to do with the bottles my daughter liked. Like. But it can be really um, 
frightening to think that we're going to have to figure this out as we go, because we know that we're going to be figuring out a lot as we go. We're going to be figuring out who we are as moms. We're going to be figuring out baby, like there's, you can't figure out baby sleep in advance, but dang it, I can figure out the bottles. But so having to push any of that into the season of new motherhood feels really scary because we already know we're going to feel off kilter and uncertain for quite a long time. Um, and so we want to nail down what we can in advance, but I think letting ourselves acknowledge that all of parenting is trial and error. And I hate that more than anybody. (laughs) I hate trial and error, but there's no other way. And if we have to, like, if the swaddles we pick don't work, it's fine. If the bottles we pick don't work, it's fine. Like we are going to find our way. And I think the best thing we can do is to shut out those distractions the best we can. Like do your due diligence, do what you need to do to feel prepared. Of course, I would never tell anyone, don't make a baby registry. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Give people an idea of how they can serve you in that way. But it's not everything. And if if you can learn to trust yourself, that's going to serve you so much better in, in the uncertainty that's coming. Yeah. Well, somebody asked me one time what my parenting style was. And my, what I, I was like, oh, okay, well, let me think about this. Like, here's all the different things. And I'm one of those people that likes to take a little bit from everything. And so what I came up with is my parenting style is called the pivot. And so I pivot what I'm doing to match what my children need at that moment and that happens from the time they're an infant and they my twins had bloody stools on their formula and I had to pivot and my daughter was not doing well in a school that I thought she would do great in and I had to pivot and I thought I was a great parent when it came to sleep and putting kids to bed and then I had three that did not want to read all at the same time and I had to pivot right so that became mm-hmm. my parenting style is you you just change what you're doing to meet the needs of your kid. And that is true for the swaddles and the bottles and all that kind of stuff too. Let's um, switch over to the speed round. Okay, you ready? Yeah. Okay, we're going to wrap yes, things up with these, with these 10 questions. So it's meant to just be kind of fast fire fun. Let our listeners get to know you a little bit. Okay. I so, love a good speed round. Question number one. What was your very first thought when you found out you were pregnant? I was totally in shock for all the reasons I named before. Yeah. Wasn't sure that I could get pregnant. At first, I thought the test was negative. I almost threw it away. <laughs> so I was just Surprise. Floored. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> summer or winter pregnancy? I'm going to say summer. Uh, I've had both. And even though the heat of summer is terrible... I would much rather wear dresses and sandals than like shove my swollen feet into boots and try to walk across the ice. Excellent. The best parenting advice you ever got? To approach kids and their behavior with a deep sense of empathy because it diffuses not just the kids, but it diffuses me. Excellent. That's a good one. Um, Your absolute hardest parenting moment. Uh, finding, so I guess this is a little bit big picture, finding high quality, affordable childcare, but then helping my kids transition to new providers. It's really hard. It is really hard. I I think that probably childcare and because both my husband and I work 
is our biggest stressor in everything related to our children. Um, for 100%. sure. 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, dresses or yoga pants? Yoga pants forever and ever. Yes, me too. Your absolute favorite holiday tradition that you have with your family? It's so small and simple, but I love having a really cozy movie night with hot chocolate. We try to do that at least once a year during the holidays. Yeah, that's good. The one thing that you used most while you were pregnant? Natural Calm Magnesium Powder. It helped with so many things. Um, Restless legs in pregnancy, anxiety, sleep, and even a good stool softener if you need help in that department. <laughs> yes. Well, and everybody can use help in that department after you have your baby. Uh, that's. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, this is probably TMI, but the first poop after you have a no baby is your worst poop in your whole life. Uh, just. Yeah. It, it just is. And you just got to yeah. get over it. The one thing you wish all mothers knew about being pregnant. I wish that all mothers knew that it's not just a means to an end. We don't go through these nine months passively just to get to the prize of a baby. It is a deeply transformative process for you personally. And because transformation is always hard earned, it's okay to not be sunny and happy and grateful all the time. It's okay to acknowledge all the things we talked about today, the sorrow and the grief and the fear that's inherent in the process. And I think it's only in acknowledging those things that we can fully enjoy the depth of the joy and the empowerment and the wonder of it. So lean into the change and know that um, this pregnancy is not just about your baby. It's about you too. That's wonderful. Do you have any favorite either blogs or Instagram accounts or podcasts that you follow that you find to be particularly positive and helpful in keeping you positive with your parenting? Yeah. So I love the happy as a mother Instagram account and podcast. Um, it's so useful in helping us relate to both our kids and to examine ourselves and sort of our own triggers around parenting. And I'd say Dr. Becky at home is someone else. I love following her on Instagram. She does these quick little videos where she literally gives you a script to use in whatever situation you might face with your kids. And I use so much of her language at home. I also love the blog Kindred Mom. Um, They release a couple essays a week and they're releasing a book soon. And then I also love Colleen Temple. She's a writer on Instagram and she just writes these incredibly beautiful, heartfelt captions directly to mothers. And I always feel inspired by her. She always knows how to put words to the things that I'm feeling. Last question. What are you grateful for today? I am so grateful for fall temperatures and a string of sunny days. Usually in Chicago, we get about three days of fall. And I don't know if it's just a special blessing for the time of COVID, but this is the best fall that I can remember. It's gorgeous. And I am loving every second of it. That's awesome. What did I not ask you about today that you were hoping to talk about? Culture, again, hands us a script for what pregnancy should look like and what motherhood should look like. And it's often a caricature. And like we were talking about before, we don't need to be that. We are the moms that our kids need. And it's okay if our motherhood doesn't look like the person next to us. It's okay if it doesn't look the way we always envisioned it would. Um, We can really 
just like we bring a unique experience and deeply rooted and unique strengths to any situation, to any conversation, to any job, it's the same with motherhood. Like we are not all meant to be exactly the same mom. And I think we can learn to trust that we are the person our kids need and that when we're not, that we can equip ourselves with tools to meet our kids' needs. It's not a character flaw if we don't know how to deal with such and such situation. It's not because we're not a good mom. It's just because we're new to this. That's something that I think about all the time is when my daughter was one month old, I was one month old. When she was two years old, I was two years old. And that anything that I lack is a skill gap and that I can fill that in order to be the best mom that I can be for her. Yeah. And, and I think, and I would encourage you all to do that too. Yeah. No, I think it's really true. Somebody said to me one time, this is your first time parenting a two month old, or this is your first time mm-hmm. parenting this two month old. Because what I learned from my first baby to my twins is that all kids are different. And what worked really well with my first child did not work with my second child or my third child. And you have to kind of relearn parenting. So whatever phase in parenting you're at, you are learning how to do it. And it's not that you are a bad parent. It's just that you need to gain another skill. And and that's what makes parenting mm-hmm. so difficult and so challenging and so fun and so rewarding is that you are constantly getting those new skills. Yes, exactly. Beautifully said. Well, Brittany, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the podcast. I just really loved talking to you. And I think your book is fantastic. And I love how it addresses all the non-physical transformation stuff that's going on with your body in addition to what it feels like to be pregnant. Um, And I'm really excited for our listeners to read the book and um, and for us to do an Instagram live uh, a couple days after this podcast releases. Me too. Thank you again so much for having me and for, oh my gosh, the honor of recommending this book to your listeners. That is a huge privilege and a huge honor. And I'm so grateful. So thank you all for participating and listening. And um, yeah, thank you for having me and just letting me be part of this community. Yeah, absolutely. We will talk again soon. Keep saying it, Walt. No. Podcast.